<laughs> I was in South Kensington earlier on. I'm absolutely convinced that I saw Ringo Starr yeah, coming out of a shop he's, 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 and walking down the road. He's around there. He is, isn't he? Mm. I think it was. I'm gonna, I've decided I saw Ringo Starr today mm. looking fit and well. I'm 70 blah and... I didn't give him a thumbs up. I should have done in the peace sign, peace and love. Double thumbs up. Double thumbs up. That's for Macca. All right. <laughs> peace sign for Ringo. Website of Macca going. It's like, it's like hundreds of pictures of him going. It's really, uh, people are so. I saw Ringo Starr on the King's Road once with Barbara Bach. So are they still together? Yes, yeah, they, they are. absolutely are. Yeah. Amazing. Yeah, this is a long time ago, but uh, sort of inertia yeah. or something. I don't know what's keeping them together. They were both, both. They both filmed little pieces to camera for that nation's favourite Beatles song thing that was on a few weeks ago. And Ringo's looking pretty good. You know, he's looking pretty fit. And I think it's probably because nobody loves him better. Noises off. You really have got to be a certain age to get that. Seventies <laughs> <laughs> spy, spy who loved me, fans. Hello and welcome to Backlisted. I'm John Mitchinson and we're coming to you live from the kitchen table of Unbound, the website where readers and writers meet to create great books. Hello everyone, my name's Andy Miller, I'm the author of The Year of Reading Dangerously. John and I are the Levis and Butthead of, uh, <laughs> of the book world. I have to tell you, John, I've had a complaint about that joke this week. What was the complaint? It's not funny. Well, that's... But I, I've said in the Stuart Lee manner we will continue selling it week after week until it becomes funny. Funny. <laughs> well, and it's only remotely funny if A, you know who Beavis and Butthead are, and B, if you know who FR Leavis is. I'm confident, which I suppose that, a tiny, I'm confident that, that everyone listening to this <laughs> is familiar with at least one of those. <laughs> <laughs> right. Why don't we start with you this week, Andy? Andy, what have you been reading? <laughs> Thanks, John. I've been reading the book Finnegan's Wake by <laughs> James Joyce. As you do, or as you don't. There's almost uh, I can hear little kind of uh, inverted commas in your voice around the word reading. I have been reading. I read. I read twenty pages of it every morning when I get up. And sort uh, of calisthenics for the uh, for yes, the brain. Yeah, yes, yeah. scourer for the brain. I've read everything else pretty much written by James Joyce, and I really liked the idea of working my way through a book that is widely held to be never read. I know two people who've read it, and I very much like the idea of being the third person I know who's read it all the way through. So I'm 428 pages into it, and um, I've got 200 pages to go. <laughs> who's counting? <laughs> we'll be, and I'll be reading it on Christmas morning. So <laughs> happy Christmas, everyone. When we were talking to Linda, the last podcast we did, I was saying, oh, the thing about reading Feeling is Wake, it's, it's a bit like a prog rock solo. It's like this endless widdly widdly wee thing that goes on forever and ever and ever and ever. But it's not. I've changed, I've revised my opinion. It's more like reading Trout Mask Replica by Captain Beefheart. And like Trout Mask Replica, it's like being... <laughs> the reader is like a member of the magic band. Do you know how Captain Beefheart recorded Trout Mask Replica? I don't. OK, well, he, <laughs> he basically kept the magic band hostage in a house for six months. They all, he made them all sleep in one room. And every morning, he would get Zoot Horn Rolo, and he would say to him, I've got a new song. And he'd bang out this atonal thing on the piano, and then Zoot Horn Rolo would have to go next door to the, where the band was sleeping, eating only rice, and have to learn 
these incredibly strange and intricate and elusive songs in multiple time signatures. And when I started reading Finnegan's Wake, I felt a bit like, oh, how am I ever going to get my head around this? It's like listening to some very strange piece of music. But as I've got more into it, I think like that Beefheart-like Stockholm syndrome has set in. I find I'm really, I'm not not enjoying it. I'm actually beginning to really enjoy it. And I've just gone back and reread the first few pages, which seemed like gobbledygook to me the first time I read them. And, and now they, they're really beginning to make sense. There's something really wonderful about it. We've actually got a clip, I think, of Joyce reading a page of Finnegan's Wake. So we're just going to listen to that now. Don't pretend it or haven't I told you. Every telling has a tailing, and that's the he and the she of it. Look, look, the dusk is growing. My branches lofty are taking root, and my cold chair's gone ashly. Filo, filo, what age is that? It soon is late. Tis endless now since I arrived one last saw Waterhouse's clock. They took it asunder, I heard them sigh. When will they reassemble it? Oh, my back, my back, my back. I'd want to go to Aixley Pains. Ping pang, there's the bell for sex alighters at Conchetta de Spray. Time. Ring out the clothes, ring in the dew. God of Ari, the showers, and grant thy grace. Amen. Will we spread them here now? Aye, we will. Flip. Spread on your bank, and I'll spread mine on mine. So that's Joyce reading from Finnegan's Way. And I actually, when I got to that chapter, I read that along with Jim. <laughs> and <laughs> I really wish that he'd, I really wish he'd, he'd found the time, having, re- having spent 17 years writing it, that he'd found the time to read the whole thing. Because actually when you listen to him read it and you, and you read along with it, you realise how many of the references are meant to be heard rather than read and how musical it is as well. Anthony Burgess, who who loved it, thought it was a comic masterpiece, said it was a book where you could laugh out loud on almost every page. Is that something you found? You <laughs> laugh I, 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 there's a quote... I, I'm, I have to say, yeah, yeah. For, for, you know, full disclosure, I have looked at Finnegan's Wake many times. I have read bits of it. Yeah. I'm, I was a huge, huge Joyce fan, and I've read Ulysses more than once, but I just... it is. T.S. Eliot famously called it the great dead end of literature... And uh, Nabokov called it the snore in the a snore in the next room. <laughs> but do you feel it's it's improving your your sense of something, your sense of uh, per- perception of? I mean, it's it's kind of it is like you say, it's a riff, isn't it? It's a sort of yeah, it's, endless. It's I really like the idea of someone who's basically faced down any accusations of self indulgence and gone, well, I'm just going to ignore any of that. I'm just going to do what I want. It's the most determined attempt to write only about what James Joyce wanted to write about in the way James Joyce wanted to write about it. Can I ask, so last podcast you read Stephen Hawking's uh, previous year, which is another book that famously nobody's ever read, and you, and you found a factual inaccuracy. I'm, a, I'm about to laugh in a couple of pages. I did. Have you found any factual inaccuracies so far in Finnegan's Way? I'll be honest with you, Matt, it's hard to tell. <laughs> I, I've also got a reader's guide to Finnegan's Wake, which requires its own reader's guide. And, it's I, I, know, I know, I, know I've, I have that as well, and that, oh. was, that was the thing that put me off. But I love this, that Beckett said this. Beckett wrote a, a long and very good thing about it. Uh, you know, what was it called? Our in, uh, factification around his incarnation of work in progress. But Beckett, I like this. Basically, Beckett seems to suggest that it's an object you should have on your mantelpiece. <laughs> 
He said, <laughs> you cannot complain that this stuff is not written in English. It's not written at all. It's not to be read. It is to be looked at and listened to. His writing is not about something. It is that something itself. The thing is... <laughs> That's actually perfectly true. I, I must say I'm really finding the experience of reading it really worthwhile and really valuable. Because, you know, you're... I feel confident talking about it before I finish reading it because it's not like something's going to happen at the end that's <laughs> going to radically alter my view of it. It's like being immersed an appropriate, you know, watery image for the wake. But it's like being immersed in this stream of, of language. It's terrific. I must just add one final thing about it. There's a Burgess quote on the back of my copy which says, this is the most entertaining book ever written. <laughs> right? OK? I just have a vision of somebody, down, you know, they're going on holiday, they've got £10 in their pocket. They go to the bookshop, they go, oh, no, I want something fun, oh, this is good, this is, this is 8 and it's the most entertaining book ever written. I just imagine the lawyer's letters flying to Anthony Burgess. But what have you been reading, John? Well, it's this time of year, and I have to say this is December 2015, and I always try and read a bit of Dickens that I haven't read before. So I was reading some of his minor Christmas works. A couple of them really I, I enjoyed hugely. One was <laughs> called... His minor Christmas works. Well, <laughs> not A Christmas Carol, which I, I have to ah, say, okay. I confess utterly, I, I totally love Christmas Carol. And it was also, it's a book that totally transformed, I mean, invented Christmas. The whole thing about Dickens inventing Christmas, which mm. we could go on and on about. But I quite liked the whole idea that he, he had it, it was delivered to him, downloaded to him, and he wandered around when all sober folks had gone to bed and broke out, as he described himself, like a madman and sort of wrote it in a, in a very, very quickly. And he'd written it basically to make money, which it didn't at first and then did. But I just liked the idea that it kicked off this mad idea, which was that he would go and read. So when he performed it for the first time, it was a three-hour performance in Birmingham, of all places. And he was a crowd of 2,000 people. Mm. And he, uh, he would stand up there, and, and, th and that was the first time really anybody had done a major public reading. And kind of, you know, he performed all the, all the exciting bits. But what I particularly liked, on his reading days, Dickens would drink two tablespoons of rum mixed with cream for breakfast, a pint of champagne for tea, and half an hour before he went on stage would knock back a sherry with a raw egg beaten into it. During the five-minute interval, he liked a cup of beef tea and later on headed to bowl with a bowl of soup. He liked to perform in full evening dress with a bright red flower in his buttonhole, purple waistcoat and watch chain, and he had a team of six people. I mean, it was serious going on tour, and he made an absolute oh, yeah, fortune. Yeah. I read Claire Tomlin's biography of Dickens, which was published two or three years ago, and it's remarkable when you read that, when you, when you see how many things he did, he's writing, he's campaigning, he's drinking champagne for breakfast, he's encouraging his friends to visit him in Broadstairs. It's amazing he didn't die at the age of 25. And, I, <laughs> and he was massively influential. The one, one of the ones I read, the, 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 it's called The Holly Tree, mm. and like Christmas Carol is th four staves, this is three branches, and it starts with a most brilliant description of one of the best descriptions of being getting up in the early in the morning in the freezing cold and getting on a coach and coming out of London and it basically what happens is the guy he's leaving London because he thinks he's discovered that his girlfriend actually prefers his best friend to him and he goes up north and gets snowed in in, a, in, a, in an inn called the Holly Tree and then actually discovers while he's there that in fact there was a huge misunderstanding and uh, the girl actually loved him after all he goes back and marries her and they have kids and live happily ever after so it's one of those wonderful mm. you know Dickens doing but what I love the power of Dickens is he read this for the first time in the in the states as a as a live reading it was published in 1855 and it was so impressed the people of Boston 
that uh, one of the publishers in Boston's wife decided to set up a series of not-for-profit restaurants called Holly Tree Inns, which was became hugely successful. I mean, it's just one reading of Dickens, and suddenly, you know, there's a whole entrepreneurial change. And apparently Holly Tree Inns were, were known well into the 20th century wow. as a place where poor people could go. And... So that's one. And there was another lovely um, uh, monologue, uh, which um, Mrs Lirriper's Lodgings, which is one of those great Dickensian yes. landladies. Yeah, I remember. Yeah. Um, uh, I, there was a, a Hesperus published a lovely edition of it recently yeah. with uh, introduction by Philip Hensher. It may become more germane as we come to talk about David Nobbs. There is that thing of transformation in Dickens. You take a character and you, you know, either it's the supernatural mm. or it's you know mm. extremes mm. of weather or it's some, and they meet elements of their past and it's those once those things are revealed to them it creates a new possibility for the future and i think that's sort of maybe a tenuous link to tenuous link. open up the meat of our discussion. I, I, I just want to say I have read those two stories, but 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 this is a this is a moot point to which I suspect we will return frequently in the weeks ahead. I've I've read I think I've read all of Dickens, uh, but I haven't read the a letters. chunk of it. Not the letter. All right, all, all the, the fiction. 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 Okay. <laughs> I think I've read. Let me let me modify my brag. <laughs> I think well, I, I, I asked that because I tell you one of the things that Michael Holroyd once once told me, which he said he discovered that Bernard Shaw, of which he was writing the great magnificent biography, he said that because Shaw had a secretary, he figured out that Shaw could write more words in a day than he, Michael Holroyd, could read in a day. <laughs> so, and that's a really terrifying. That's a really terrifying statistic for a biographer to have to, to juggle I, with. But I just, as someone who has read. <laughs> All, all the fiction of Dickens. Of Dickens. <laughs> all, of Dickens. <laughs> all of Dickens. Fiction. Didn't let me finish. Okay. <laughs> but I read it when I was 20. I'm 47. I can't remember it. It's totally You know, I can't... It, it's like I read... Uh, I think I read uh, Martin Chuzzlewit. I, I know, know I've read I, Martin Chuzzlewit. I can't tell you anything about it. I know. It's like the old Woody Allen line, you know. I've speed, I took a speed reading course. So I've just finished War and Peace. It's about Russia. <laughs> <laughs> I, I, ha- I think of... Pickwick Papers, which I remember loving, I'd say it's about drinking yeah. brandy, yeah. buttered rum in inns in early Victorian England. I can't really remember. And yet the, the feel of a book really stays with you, I think. Yeah. So that if you go back and read that now, you read Pickwick Papers now, the thing that would come back to you, I think, is the, is the, the feeling of it rather than the, the specifics of it. All, all I will say is I do quite... I have gone back several times to read Great, Great Expectations is my favourite novel, and every time I read it, it it's... And you should never read those things when you're in your teens. It's particularly Great Expectations, it's much more interesting reading it in your 50s. You know what? The thing is, I've come to the conclusion in the last few years that there's no there's not really any point reading anything before you're 40 because <laughs> because first of all you're not really going to understand it because you haven't lived enough right and the second thing is if you read it when you're 20 you're going to forgotten it by now anyway yeah. so well, you should just or, have or live just, a bit exactly. live a bit have a bit of experience I know. exactly sound of, that's a sound of a man puffing <laughs> on a pipe for everybody that was a very good that's very um, good but I know I, I. But I just cry all the time. That's the thing I find. I cry at almost anything now. Um, you know. Yes. Uh, you go easily. Yeah. Very. Did you go very, in the, either of these stories? Uh, no, not in these. But I did. I cry. I did cry. I had a little bit of a tear at the end of the knobs. I, I cried. Did, I cried yeah. during the knobs. Yeah. That seems like the, <laughs> seems like the weeping men. <laughs> well, now hand over to our very the, good... the hard hard man co. Who... <laughs> <laughs> We're delighted to be joined by the novelist Jonathan Coe. Hello, Jonathan. Hello there. Um, Jonathan is the author, of course, of What's Carve Up, The Rotters Club, House of Sleep, and 
many more. Are oh, those too numerous to mention? <laughs> the, phrase, <laughs> yes, the phrase you're reaching for, I think. And also yeah. the biographer, of course, of B.S. Johnson, the wonderful book like Fiery Elephant. Brilliant. And you've just published a new novel called Number 11, which is your 11th novel. Sort of. Right? <laughs> sort of. I mean, that's why <laughs> I called it. That's me. why I called it Number 11. But then I did realise afterwards that, uh, that I, I wrote a little children's book, which has not been published in the UK. It's only published in French and Italian. Wow. So actually, it's kind of my 12th book. But, oh, you've you ruined know, that. Yeah, yeah, yeah we, you know. <laughs> Sound of a publisher's ears pricking up. <laughs> not published yes, here, you in, say? Indeed. <laughs> we'll pick this up again after some marvellously witty and interesting adverts. We're here to talk about a great favourite of mine and yours, the author David Nobbs, who sadly passed away earlier this year. Mm-hmm. And I noticed that in the finished copies of Number 11... The book is dedicated to David, which I thought was a lovely thing. Uh, that. Dedicated to his memory, yes. Yeah, uh, David, as you said, died in uh, August this year. And the first inkling I had of his death, actually, because we, we, we'd we been in touch fairly regularly, but but not for the last few months, first inkling I had was a tweet from you, because I was, in, I was on a coach in France uh, looking at my Twitter feed, mm. and you'd quoted a passage from his last book, uh, The Second Life of... Sally Mosham. Yeah, right. I thought, oh, that's nice. And he's quoting bits of David Nobbs. And I scrolled down a bit and I saw other people were talking about David Nobbs as well. And I got that sinking feeling that there's yeah. only one reason why suddenly everybody's talking about the same person and something, ac- something must have happened to him. So, my uh, actual, cover your ears, everyone. I think my actual tweet uh, expressing a great truth was fucking hell, David Nobbs has died. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but yes. Um, and, you know, I, I'd known him since the mid 90s, late 90s, something, something like that, probably. And uh, we'd become uh, we'd, we'd become quite good friends. And one of the things we'd got into the habit of was sending each other each other's books, usually shortly before they're about to be published, kind of publishers' advance copies. And uh, we, we we would comment on uh, each other's latest books and this kind of thing. And I realised that uh, you know I was really going to miss many things about him, but but that dialogue in particular, really. Mm. And, I, and I think. David was a very tactful person, but also a very honest person. And you, you knew from his emails whether he actually liked the book he received or not. Um, I think of the close circle, he said, Thank you, Jonathan. I did enjoy this book, even though as a writer you did everything you could to stop me enjoying it. <laughs> <laughs> he sent me a lovely note before The Year of Reading Dangerously was published. He very, we sent him a copy and he very kindly read it and sent me a lovely note which I choose to believe he, he, he liked. He said, you know, I found the book funny and I found it provocative and all those things. But he said a lovely thing at the end, which is he said, I just want to send you this note and say thank you for the pleasure that you've given me. And I thought that was a very David-ish thing to do, yeah. to specifically thank someone for having entertained them and, and yeah. made them laugh. You well, know. pleasure and entertainment were a very important component of, uh, of literature as far as, as far as David was concerned. I mean, yeah. he, he spent most of his life entertaining people in one way or another, mm. Mm. Uh, both on television and radio and, and in his novels. So, uh, you know, he, he, yeah, he felt that very, very keenly himself. Really. I mean, it's one of the first things he looked for in a book as a reader was, was pleasure. I'm just going to, for the benefit of people listening who aren't familiar with David, I'm just going to give a very short potted biography. David was born in 1935 in Petswood, educated at Marlborough and Cambridge, then became a reporter for the Sheffield Star, which I think he used later in... In Pratt of the Argus. Pratt of the Argus, indeed, yeah. And then in the early 60s, he became a contributor to... um, That was the week that was. And that was his kind of entree into the world of sketch writing. He wrote for Frost, and then he wrote for Kenneth Williams 
Frankie Howard, Les Dawson and the Two Ronnies, you would be familiar with a couple of the sketches because they're very, very famous that he wrote for the Two Ronnies, such as the... Just the Complete Rook, the... Uh, that's right, the Complete Rook. The restaurant which only has Rook-related... Yeah. He didn't, he didn't and the mispronounced mis- mis- Worms. Yes, that's, that's, that yes. was him as well. He didn't do the mastermind one with the no, that's, uh, that's David, David, that's David, David Renning. 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 Yeah, that's right. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. Um, and he was, he was his co-writer for some of this was Barry Cryer. That's right, isn't it? And Peter Tinsley wrote. He wrote. He wrote with Barry Cryer. Yeah. I want to talk specifically about David as a novelist as we go on, but he was also writing novels. He wrote twenty novels in total. The first published in 1965, the last published in 2014. His most famous book is probably The Death of Reginald Perrin, subsequently adapted for television as uh, The Rise and Fall of Reginald Perrin. Fall and Rise. Fall and Rise. rise. Oh, God. <laughs> textbook, oh, Andy. Te- textbook. Oh, I've let myself down. <laughs> you see what he was doing there, though? Uh, yes. <laughs> and, he's also, and he also wrote radio plays, radio series... He adapted your novel, What a Carver. For the radio, he did, for Radio 4. A great uh, a, eight-part adaptation on Radio 4. And he wrote a memoir called um, I Didn't Get Where I Am Today. <laughs> <laughs> of course. Yeah. Of course I didn't get where I am today. <laughs> but um, he was also a humanist. He was a, a long-standing patron of the British Humanist Association. And that's really the book that you suggested that we all read prior to talking about this is a novel that he published in 2011 when he was 75 Mm. called It Had to Be You. Yeah, he had an amazing kind of flowering as a a novelist, really, in his his 70s. I think he published six or seven novels in his 70s. And uh, particularly the last four, actually, just just sort of poured out of him almost at uh, at yearly intervals. And they're, they're pretty long, substantial pieces of work. You can also sense uh, a kind of a deepening and an, an increasing richness and seriousness in his in his writing. Actually, I mean the books are still funny, but they're not as they aren't as funny as the uh, as the original Perrin or, mm. or Henry Pratt novels. I don't see that as a criticism, but but uh, I think David was changing and evolving as a writer. And in fact, many years ago, when I reviewed him for the Sunday Times, I made this very bold statement which the then literary editor of the Sunday Times actually phoned me up and invited me to withdraw from the end of the review. <laughs> I, said, <laughs> I, said he was, I said that David Thompson was probably our finest post-war comic novelist. The word, the word probably, of course, is the, is the huge, uh, yeah. huge let-out clause there. And uh, this, this was duly uh, plonked on the cover of, front cover of every book he published since, I think, and t- until, including It Had to Be You, but towards the end, David asked for it to be taken off, and, I, and he said, you know, it's nothing, uh, it's nothing personal, Jonathan, but I don't want to be regarded as a comic novelist anymore. That's not how I think of myself. Yeah, I, just want, I just want to be thought of as a novelist. And he felt the term was a bit, a bit diminishing, really. And, and with It Had to Be You, I think you can see where he's coming totally. from, because it's, totally. a, it's a very, very serious novel. I'm just going to read the... the well, this is going to become a backlisted tradition, and we're going to read the blurb on the back of each book. So no spoilers for those of you who haven't read it. And that's good, it's not because we haven't read it. No, we've all, we've all read it. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Well, yeah. Uh, summer is in full swing, and it is one of those heady Wimbledon summers. But strawberries and champers couldn't be further from James Hollinghurst's mind because his life is about to be turned upside down. Running a dwindling business and acting as patriarch of a dysfunctional family is stressful enough, but when tragedy strikes, it is only the start of James' myriad problems. <laughs> <laughs> myriad? That's very good. His daughter Charlotte won't speak to him, an old flame has reared her head, and he just has to do something about his PA Marsha. And then, of course, there's Helen. Dot, dot, dot. It had to be you as a comic, 
and dark portrait oh, of a yeah. good man who has done bad things and is about to realise that even death can't conceal the most hidden of truths. John, do you want to say... You, no, I, well, you this, is my first, this, before, this is my right? first... I'm, I was an, a knobs uh, virgin until this. And I have to say, I really, really enjoyed this book and, and, and actually will go definitely go and read more more of his, his work. Comic is such a difficult word, isn't it? Because it's if you're talking about Shakespeare's comedies and Shakespeare's tragedies, it means one thing. But if you're talking about writing knob gags for television, it means something quite different. This is a proper grown-up novel about serious things. It starts with... I think we're allowed to say there's no point really trying to hide the plot too much, but it starts with the, the protagonist's wife being killed in a head-on accident. And it's about dealing with, as, as much as anything else, the practical... What I love about it is the practical details of how you deal with some major tragedy and how you mm. mentally... The book, it really is about him coming to terms with the loss of a life, a wife who he is being, has been for five years previously unfaithful to. I don't think I've read anything that's been quite as convincing uh, and, and by the end really deeply moving about, how, about that, sort of, that process of grief. But beyond that, the thing that I sort of really realised that, the, other than Jonathan's own work, lower middle class sort of suburbia, you realise how little of it there is in, mm, in, in, yeah. in English fiction and, and how peculiar that is. I mean, I guess, you know, there's quite a lot of chick lit that is set in that milieu, but not a lot of what I would call serious fiction. And I, I, although it's a comic in the biggest sense of the word... Oh, I agree. It's not... A, he's not, I would say, it's not comedy. It's not laugh no, out loud. There are plenty of novels set in... The Inner City, and there are plenty of novels set in Hampstead, but there are precious few set in Surbiton. Yeah. <laughs> you know, or Purley, where, is what we're where Purley, where, where most people live. What is, um, about, you know. what is it about the world of packaging that makes it so ripe for the, <laughs> the office and this? Both That's like, true. It's very true. Oh, it's that great scene where he gives the speech towards the end, where he's, he, the business is, you know, he's having to stand in front of the, and he's kind of addled by grief at this point. And he has to stand up in front of her, and he gives this fantastic speech. And what's the line where he's sort of saying, you know, I, I work in the world of packaging, and then it was said, "Do you fancy a fuck?" I think it's what's going <laughs> through right, his head. Exactly, yeah, response, yeah. And, the, and I think he, the one that he put, he doesn't actually say that in the speech in front of his boss. He actually says, you know, what are you doing next Thursday? Yeah, it's got all of that glob pack, <laughs> which is the, yeah. the name of the company. It still has that lovely Reggie Perrin, and I'm speaking as somebody who hasn't read the novels, only seen the television. Twice. So I know one of the things that you w will come up is that the Reggie Perrin novels are actually a lot darker than than they, they appeared in in television. But I indeed I felt he was brilliant. I mean, I thought the way it was structured was really well. There was maybe one plot line too many. I'm not sure we needed the murder. Yeah. <laughs> Careful spoilers. Okay, I'm not going to tell you anymore. <laughs> Jonathan, but, did you have a, a bit that you wanted to read? Yeah, I was, I was just going to read a little uh, bit of dialogue between the hero, or the anti-hero, whatever you want to call him, James Hollinghurst, and the vicar who has come round to discuss the uh, <laughs> funeral arrangements. Uh, and I, vicar. Yes. And, I, you know, I, I do agree with you about the how, how rare it is to see... You know, these kind of, these kind of scenes in, in, yeah. in modern fiction, really. And to me, that's about David's warmth as a writer and his his willingness to find kind of drama and greatness 
in these banal settings. I mean, as, as the guy making the speech about packaging says, you know, somebody has to package things. We're, we're actually doing, we're actually doing yeah, something yeah, just say, just say, yeah. incredibly important here. And at the same time, you know, these people are full of kind of grandiose hopes and dreams, just just yeah. like everybody else. So yeah. it's the it's the That's disjunction between theme, those, yeah, isn't it? It's a yeah. great theme in David's work. I yes, think. absolutely. Uh, so yes, this is the uh, the dialogue between James and the Reverend Martin Vigar. The Reverend Martin Vigar had sparse hair, which he'd carefully combed to cover as much of his pate as possible. He was very tall and walked with the slight stoop of a man who doesn't want to intimidate his fellow mortals. James couldn't believe that he was so pleased to welcome a vicar to his home. Then anything that took his mind off the evening to come was welcome. In fact, the vicar fascinated him. When, on being offered a cup of tea, he replied, "'That would be quite delightful. The cup that cheers.' And no, 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 no sugar, thank you. I'm sweet enough already. He was every inch a vicar and as arch as a bishop. But when they went, but when they went into the living room and he got a wad of A4 and a ballpoint pen out of his briefcase, his voice lost its trace of sing-song and developed a hint of North Kent, and his business-like manner led James to expect that at any moment he would say, Now, life insurance, you adequately covered? This prompted him to say, Quite a change of career you've had, to which the vicar replied with a smile, Yes, straight from Mammon to God. Did you, <laughs> did you, you know, get a sudden call, as it were? The Reverend Martin Vigar gave a self-deprecating smile. Nothing as dramatic as a call, he said, more of a whisper in my ear. I suppose, increasingly over the years, I began to feel the need for a meaning to life, and particularly to my life. And have you found that meaning? The vicar hesitated. It isn't as clear-cut as that, he said. I am finding it. It's a process, a long process, not always an easy process. He turned suddenly grave. I'm so sorry that my first visit to your lovely home should be for such a sad reason. Thank you. He produced a sheet of paper and handed it to James, and again it felt as though it would be a quote for insurance. <laughs> the order of service. I think it's as agreed, but I thought we should check before it... This is in inverted commas. ...goes to print. <laughs> James looked through it carefully. Yes, that's fine. I had a very good talk with your brother, Philip. He seemed a very nice man. He's great. That's so good to hear in this time of crisis for the family. James was beginning to realise that there were a lot of inverted commas in the vicar's life. He emphasised that you are not, in essence, a religious family. James was careful not to fall into his catchphrase, not to say, I'm sorry. He felt very strongly that this was nothing to apologise for. No, we're not. In fact, I'll be honest with you. After we'd arranged all the details, I wondered if we should have gone for a humanist service. Ah, yes, the woodland burial route. Well, let me reassure you, Mr Hollinghurst, this will be a Christian funeral service, but it will not be pious. It will be, if I may put it like that, soft on God. <laughs> very low church, very C of E, you might say. In my eulogy, I will touch upon the message of eternal life, but I won't, quote, rub it in. <laughs> Thank you. Then James found himself approaching three words that he would find difficult to utter with a straight face. More tea, Vicar? That's <laughs> <laughs> oh, so good, isn't it's it? Genius. So good. It's so great that you picked that section, the humanist section, because Matt and I were talking earlier about this book. Matt had read it, and he said, Matt was saying um, he it had turned out differently. The plot had turned out differently from how he was expecting. I don't want to give the ending mm. away, but mm. there isn't, there aren't any more deaths before the end of the book. Yeah. And there is an implication that perhaps we might expect one or two more before the end of the book. Mm. And I felt that knowing something of David's humanist beliefs, that the what happens to James is really what David wanted to write about, that he has a journey from, I suppose, 
kind of some kind of queasy agnosticism mm. to a sort of convinced humanism. And yeah. I found this quote from David, in which, which he gave around the time this book was published. He said, I believe there are just as many Christian virtues to be found among the faithless as the faithful. Furthermore, these qualities are explored and developed along individual paths. We have no God whom we can burden with the responsibilities of our actions. Loss of faith. It sounds so negative. I didn't lose faith. I gained faith. Faith in people. And I think that's David's clearly writing in this novel. I don't know, it's totally autobiographical, but there is a similar path of enlightenment expressed, yeah. as you say, in, yeah. a, in a packaging firm in a, <laughs> around a suburban funeral in the space of a week. Mm. I, uh, think that, I think uh, it is a highly autobiographical book, actually. And we can talk about this because he, he comes clean about it in his own autobiography that uh, towards the end of his first marriage he was unfaithful to his first mm. wife and he felt terrible guilt about this. And I think it's a, he chose a really interesting way in this book to write about grief in the character of a of a man whose wife dies a sudden death and his you know his initial feeling is is relief and freedom a kind of horrible guilt-ridden mm. sense sense of relief that he and that he can go straight to his mistress and say great we can now spend the rest of our lives together and you know readers who are looking for that easy kind of likable central character to identify with and root for from the beginning of the novel are, are in trouble with this book because James is, is quite dislikable at, at, at some point yeah. and, yeah. and kind of hypocritical. But David, as you say, traces a, a, a very beautiful trajectory for him, I think, from that sense of uh, complicated, guilt-ridden, hypocritical fucked upness at the beginning of the, yeah. the beginning of the book and a, a heavy drinking actually there's a lot of a lot of alcohol really consumed drinking. in this book. Well, the screaming at the radio is a thing as yes. well. I wondered, yeah. I wondered yeah. if that what well, if you could do the drink along with this book and how, <laughs> and how quite smashed think, you'd be at yes, the end of think it. Charles, Charles Dickens could but uh, <laughs> yeah, I'm not yeah. sure the rest of us could. And the, and the, the screaming at the radio bit was, you know, who hasn't sat in their car yeah. and, and berated the radio for using the wrong word? And it's just. Yes. I also like his toast routines in the morning. Remember, I, <laughs> one of David's great skills as any kind of writer, TV writer, novelist, is he's brilliant on comedy of repetition. Yeah. Mm. And, and no, there's a, a motif in this, again, there's a motif about toast in this yeah, book, which sounds very unpromising <laughs> as I say it, which is cumulatively brilliant as the book goes on. Yeah, and he's, he's very good at this. I'm just thinking about the vicar, because the vicar, I, mean, I think I'm allowed, not giving too much away to say, the vicar, having promised that he is, you know, so low church, and the vicar turns out to be a dreadful ham. That's in, right. In, in the yes. funeral. Yes, that's really, right. I just want to read this little bit, because this is... Cause this is, this is Brilliant paragraph, I think, wonderfully written. A humorous note crept into the vicar's voice, like a mouse into a platter of cheeses, as he related a vaguely amusing anecdote with which James had primed him. No, James wanted to cry, don't signal the joke, you'll kill it, frail thing that it is. He closed his ears to it, he couldn't bear to hear it, but he did hear the faint flitter of laughter that passed through the congregation like a breeze through a spinny. Breeze through a spinny, yes, I spotted that, it was wonderful. <laughs> and that is just absolutely... And then he says, rapidly stifled as the Reverend Martin Vigar slipped back into evangelism. But yeah, um, it's, yeah, it's, it's, it's he. 
I mean, I think that's one of the things that's so uh, joyful about the book is that you you know there are these he, he, without drawing attention to, to to his style at all. He's just he is he's both very funny, but he at the end there's a fantastic kind of piece at the end where he's standing in the that's garden, mm. uh, and incredibly moving and incredibly true and right. I think. Jonathan was referring to the fact that David wrote how many novels in his last ten years? Seven. Seven, Seven I think. Novels. Yeah. In those novels, he liked to do... He was quite pleased with doing something different every time that he hadn't done before. So he published a novel in 2008 called Cupid's Dart, which is the first novel that he'd written in the first person. He wrote Obstacles to Young Love in 2010. That's the first he'd written in the present tense. Mm. It Had to Be You is the first that he'd written that, t- that took place over a short period of time. That he likes to set himself slightly new frameworks to... So as not to get bored, and so as yeah. not to bore the reader. Yeah. No. I wonder if we could go back and talk a little bit about Reginald Perrin. Reginald Perrin is the first of David's books that I read. I think it's the first you read, isn't yeah, it, Jonathan? It's the first that uh, everybody reads, I think, is the, yeah. a lot of the time. Uh, and, yeah, I, I mean, I, I don't know how it was for you, but the, <laughs> the, the TV series came on air in uh, 1976 and uh, after two or three episodes I just went straight out to WH Smith as it was then yeah. my local yeah. town and uh, and bought the uh, the Penguin Time TV version and immediately noticed how different it was from the from the television series I mean it followed fo- the first half of the book follows the same narrative contours but the tone is darker and towards the end it it, it gets more surreal and you know, Ridge's desperation is 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 more intense and uncomfortable and less comic than, uh, than it's it a was man. On. It's the story of a man having a nervous breakdown. Yeah, midlife crisis turning into a nervous breakdown, right? Mm. And it's very funny. But I think one of the things that was very clear when David died was that the success of his television work had detracted somewhat from his reputation as a mm. novelist. Mm. Plus, I think a general unease in Britain particularly with the idea that things can be both funny and serious at the same time and for me you know in my own work and Jonathan I think in your books as well one of the things I got from David when I read Reginald Perrin and his subsequent books is the ease with which he mixes Mm. comedy and all other things yeah as though because that's what life is like life isn't <laughs> it mm. doesn't not have comedy in it. Well, I, there's a lovely part somewhere in the book, in, in It Had to Be You, where he talks about the desire, wishing there was more gentleness in, in TV drama. Mm. And I always thought that one of the great things about Reggie Perrin, and I, I'm, I'm sort of interested to know a little bit about that, because I, I haven't read the books. I've heard people say, for example, that Martin Clunes actually is a more believable Reggie Perrin than Leonard Rossiter, although it's really difficult if you've got the, the Leonard Rossiter performance in your head to, to ever mm. kind of separate it because he was a mm. great comic actor. But that idea of a man, you know, having a nervous brand and sort of darker side to it, that Clunes gets that better. But I wondered, do the catchphrases, are they, uh, they can't be obviously as, as sort of metronomic in the book as they are. They're, in all, they're almost as metronomic, <laughs> I think. Because, but, because they are in life, aren't they? Yes. They are in life. That's how people talk. Well, I didn't get where I am today, Andy. <laughs> <right>. uh, <laughs> super. Yeah. <laughs> 
I'm just not a, just not a podcast <laughs> kind of person. I'm just not a catchphrase person. Yeah, and I'm, so on. I think Leonard Rossiter was was brilliant as Reggie actually, but but I do <coughs> wonder what it would have been like with Ronnie Barker, which was which was David's was first choice was, of, oh of, God, of casting. He, he he was tied up with porridge during those those years and couldn't take on another major sitcom. So, but it's it's interesting why we don't. I don't really feel we produce sitcoms that have got that broad. Mm. Massive popular appeal at the porridges and the Reggie Perry. Jonathan, was David bothered by his diminished reputation as a no, novelist? No, not, not at all. I mean, I think he may have made life easier for him in his negotiations with publishers and so on if he'd, uh, you know, on a, on a purely practical basis, if his reputation, if he'd had a rock solid reputation as a novelist. But he was very, very grateful for his fame uh, as a TV writer. Very, very proud, not just of the of the uh, of the Reggie Perrin series, but a bit of a do as well, yeah. and just you know the sketches he wrote. He genuinely saw no division between high and low culture, mm. I don't think, and, and was was just as happy, pleased with himself at the end of a working morning if he'd produced a beautiful paragraph like the one that John read out, or if he'd you know produced a really good knob gag for Les Dawson. Yeah, but I think his readers really appreciate that. People I've known over the years who love David's work feel they were getting something from David in terms of both entertainment and being thought-provoking, that they don't get from many other writers. And, and for me, that's the great, the great strength yeah. in, his, in his novel writing, plus the fact he never stands still. We've got a clip of David talking about one of his later novels and the dilemma of titling novels. <laughs> could we just, if we could listen to that, that would be great. Hello again. Exciting news. Next week, I'm starting on writing my 19th novel, The Coppinger Scandal. Well, I say The Coppinger Scandal, but my lovely publishers, Harper, do have a habit of changing the titles of my books. It'll probably end up being called something like Sex on the Kitchen Table. Actually, that's a much better title. OK, he refers in that clip to a novel called, I think, The Coppinger Affair or... Coppinger Crisis. Coppinger Crisis, yeah. yeah. And he says, um, you know, my publishers will have other ideas. And they did. Mm, they did, when, yes. the, <laughs> when the novel was published, it was published as... The Fallen Rise of Gordon Coppinger, yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so, well, they, got, they got it right. You know. For obvious cash, cash in <laughs> reasons, which, which is... That's not such a big deal in a way, but I do think it's a great shame that they changed the title of It Had to Be You because it was, it was supposed to be called Life After Deborah. Which to me oh, is a oh, that's a great which title. is a great title and tells yeah. you what the book is about. Well, I don't actually. And it what had does to it be mean you. It had to be you. Well, you know, I was I, I was rereading the, this book this week and, and waiting waiting for the moment where the song came in or a phrase no, came in or totally, something. I hadn't thought that was perfect. But <laughs> completely meaningless. Yeah, this would be a, an even more memorable book if it had uh, <laughs> if, it, if it had Davis title. <laughs> In terms of his influence on you, Jonathan, was I mean, was it as simple as after you'd gone to W. H. Smith, presumably when you were quite young, and read Reggie Perrin? Did you think I want to write books like that? Did, was it sort of that straightforward a, a thing? Well, I was, all, I was already writing books a bit like that, but then I started to write books that were really like that. I think. I mean, I was. If it was, if it's nineteen seventy six, we're talking about uh, early nineteen seventy six, I suppose, and I would have been fourteen. And I think, I think I also read Catch Twenty Two that year. And and those two books, in their completely different ways, made me think, not consciously, but uh, but but on some level that okay, so you can be serious and funny at the same time. Yeah. This this combination is possible, and that that it, you know from that point on, I was trying to find my own way of of, of doing that, which took many many years. But but uh, Reginald Perrin was certainly one of the main things that uh, 
that sent me on that route. Andy Hamilton, who's another Nobs fan, said exactly that. He said, you know, life, he said, is both funny and serious. And usually at the same time, he said, it's only marketing departments that want mm. to that want to separate mm-hmm. those two things. And I, I think that is a, a problem. I can kind of see why, he, you know, having comic novelists on the front of your book is... It's a bit like, you know, talking to P.D. James or Ruth Rendell back in the day, and they were all saying, well, we're never going to win the Booker Prize because we're... We write crime novels, and you think it's it's sort of a ridiculous distinction, isn't it? If you if you read it, either of those two in particular, and and yet at the same time, I mean, David's ability to turn a comic phrase. I'm a big fan of the third Reggie Perrin book, The Better World of Reginald Perrin, which contains <laughs> which is not a good television series. I don't know. I don't think no. It's but, the one I'm going to just explain what it is. Yeah, it's the yeah. one where they open a commune. Um, yeah. I'm just going to read a little bit from that. The second one is Grot, right? Yeah. yeah, the second one is Grot. Which is yeah. great. Yeah. Uh, but he has a, a phrase in this book to describe Christmas Day. Christmas Day was grey, still and silent, as if the weather had gone to spend the holidays with its family. <laughs> I mean, you know, that's Woodhouse. That's very nice, yeah. But um, there's, a, there's a little section here. I'm just going to read this very quickly. I remember reading this in, I would estimate, 1980 at the age of 12. And I think I've laughed about it on a weekly basis ever since. So if everyone will indulge me, I'm going to share this with you. This, this, here we go. It's only a paragraph. Guests continued to pour in to Perrins, uh, which is the name of the commune. Some had strange tales and quirks to relate. There was the hotelier who owned a chain of small hotels and restaurants which bore famous names, but with the first letter missing. He owned the Avoy, (laughs) Orchester, and It's in London, (laughs) Affles in Singapore, Axims in Paris, and the Elgonquin in New York. The idea was that people would mistake them for their renowned equivalents. What actually happened... (laughs) What actually happened was that some people said, look... The first letter's dropped off the Dorchester. It must be going downhill. While the others said, Oh, look, some silly Burke's trying to pretend that's the Ritz. (laughs) The final straw to his collapsing empire came when he stayed at the Avoy (laughs) and found that its first letter had dropped off so that the neon sign outside the grubby frontage simply read, Voy Hotel. (laughs) I mean, that's that's such a brilliant gag. He he was great with names. I mean, my my favourite school bully in all of uh, literature is from second from last in Sacrates. He's called Tosser Pilkington Brick. (laughs) (laughs) And I love love both the kind of funniness of it and the lack of imagination that when the guy at the beginning of uh, It Had to Be You checks into the hotel and has to give a false name, he, he... thinks as quickly as he could and writes Mr and Mrs Rivers, Lakeview, 69 Pond Street, Pool. <laughs> With desperately serious consequences. <laughs> yes, yes, that's terrific. <laughs> and uh, in a very early novel, Ostrich Country, from 1968, he has a, a, an estate in a new town named after its most famous uh, resident, Sir Bernard Coltart, the famous dermatologist, author of Pustules Can Be Fun and many similar works. <laughs> it was in his honour that all the streets had been named after skin diseases. <laughs> the spacious cul-de-sac where the larger houses were set in their leafy gardens was known as the Shingles. 
<laughs> but Paula's mother lived with her widowed sister in a more modest house, 32 Impetigo Close. <laughs> there is just something. He, he just... There's a, a passage... This is him watching television the night he's discovered his wife uh, has died. He switched the television on, flicked through the channels, saw a pathologist cutting out the left eye of a middle-aged man and dropping it into a bottle. A panellist in a panic as he thought of the ridicule he was going to get from his workmates after he'd failed to name the capital of Hungary. A C-list fashion designer eating leeches in a mangrove swamp. An audience roaring as an overpaid chat show host held out a box of chocolates to a pretty actress and said, ''Can I give you one?'' A pathologist cutting up a pretty girl, a celebrity chef cutting up a bulb of fennel, blood pouring from oh, the stomach yeah. of a woman in a crypt, an ugly 22-stone man with a horrendous paunch throwing a dart at a board, a lion eating a cheetah, a pathologist cutting up a gay young man, a manly Rock Hudson trying to seduce a virginal Doris Day, a pathologist cutting up a very obese man, a celebrity chef cutting up a loin of pork, and two sloths copulating, well, slothfully. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it's satire but he's he's just got that great it, it, it makes it look very very easy which it isn't mm. um, I thought the Jonathan and I were both involved with a, an event to commemorate David's life earlier in the year Jonathan could you just share the once in a lifetime lineup of uh, <laughs> writers yeah, well, and uh, artists who were who were gathered together yeah it's a testament to his uh, you know how many how many different worlds he had a he had a foot in really there was Patricia Hodge reading from David's books, who who played in a couple of his TV series. There was Eleanor Bron, who knew him at Cambridge uh, in the Footlights. David Quantic, the writer of uh, Veep, was uh, was there chairing the whole thing. Uh, there was me and Andy. <laughs> Been clinging onto the side of the stage by my fingernails, to be honest <laughs> have I, with you. Have I missed anyone else? Oh, Barry Cry, Barry of course, Cryer. the great Barry Cry. Great yeah, Barry Cry. Yeah. So we were we were tasked with. Uh, Talking about David and reading from his work, and Jonathan mm. and I performed <laughs> a, 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 a particular part of Reggie Perrin. And afterwards, Eleanor Braun, who was absolutely wonderful, came up to me and said, you read that marvellously, darling. I always like to hear how those who aren't in the business approach <laughs> these things. <laughs> <laughs> I, I took that as a compliment. <laughs> we'll see. I'm, I'm sure it was. So this has been uh, great today. I hope this acts as an advert for David's work, really, that, that he was a wonderful writer and a very, very nice man. And as my tweet suggested, I was genuinely very shocked and saddened when he died earlier this year. And I wonder, Jonathan, could you just... Um, it seems appropriate to read something from the end of It Had To Be You. Ridiculously titled It Had To Be You. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, this is from the very uh, closing pages of the book. When Deborah's funeral has taken place, all of the various plot strands have been resolved and uh, James is having a moment of uh, reflection in his back garden... He's had a kind of moment of epiphany at the funeral where he's realised that he doesn't... His kind of half-hearted belief in God has slipped away and instead he's uh, sitting in his garden contemplating the universe, really. And David writes, he looked up into the... Not the heavens. Heavens, no, into the sky. He was alone, alone with only the whole solar system, the vast galaxies, the unimaginable distances, the inconceivable immensity of it. And here mankind was, on one piddling little planet, and he was of no significance on this planet. He wasn't even important in so-called Great Britain. He was just a speck in the vast, sprawling city of London. He didn't even stand out in Islington. He didn't stand out in his street in Islington, damn it. Until last Wednesday, he hadn't even been the best person living in his house. <laughs> 
but he felt excited, challenged by his belief that his life was not serving God's purpose. He felt with a surge of optimism that without belief in a received purpose in life, he had the strength to make his own life purposeful. Well, thanks very much for listening, everyone. Thanks, Jonathan, for coming in and, and talking about David. Uh, you can find Backlisted on Facebook and you can find us on Twitter at Backlisted Pod. And uh, we're now going to be locked in for the entirety of Christmas while I read Finnegan's Wake to <laughs> John Mitchinson until he, both, till both John and I are crying. Well, on every page, ladies and gentlemen. That's what I've been So um, we hope you enjoy Christmas and we'll see you in the new year. If you prefer to listen to Backlisted without adverts, you can sign up to our Patreon. That's www.patreon.com forward slash Backlisted. As well as getting the show early, you get a whole two extra episodes of what we call Locklisted, which is Andy, me and Nikki talking about the books, music and films we've enjoyed in the previous fortnight.